it's really good to be here. Before I begin, I want to share and confess how little I know about what's really in these books. I tell you, the more I read, every time I spend that time in the morning, I realize how little I know. And the more I study, the more I find, find out how much more there is to learn and how utterly incapable I am of presenting these glorious and wonderful truths that are beyond our comprehension. So, we're going to receive a blessing today. It's going to have to be the Lord and Holy Spirit who brings it to us. Ellen White says we should do more praying and less talking. So before I begin, I always like to ask a special blessing. The Lord will use me because I know that that's the only way that we can receive a blessing. So if you bow your heads with me just for a moment, again, I'd like to ask the Lord to especially help us to receive a blessing this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit now will minister to us. Help us to understand the things that are beyond our comprehension within these words and yet the things that are so necessary to our salvation. Give us a childlike faith and open up your word to us today as you would to little children, as you did back when you were here. Make it simple to us. And I pray that you will not only help us to understand the important truths for today, but that you'll write them in our hearts and in our minds, that we might not just have a knowledge of truth, but that our characters might come into line with your character, that we might be fitted up for heaven, that we might see the Holy Spirit being poured out and your work finished so that Jesus can come soon. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I do long for Jesus to come, don't you? I'll tell you, as I look around at the suffering and the sin and the sorrow in the world, it's time that the suffering and the sorrow end. I've grown up in a, a home that was very medically oriented. My father was a hospital administrator, and my mom was a nurse. Most of my cousins and uncles are doctors or nurses or something. And, uh, you know, every time I go into a hospital to visit, I think about uh, the people that are suffering. Every time I give a funeral, I, in a little way, go through the suffering with the people there. And then I think, you know, this tremendous heartache that's coming to these people that have lost a loved one is being experienced at this very moment by thousands around the world. Right now, while we're worshiping, there are many, there are hundreds of funerals going on with loved ones, wives, children, fathers, and mothers. They're suffering with their, as they uh, weep over the casket, with no hope of eternal life, most of them, or with a very dim understanding of what the future holds. When you look at these big cities like London, 
New York, Los Angeles, and you look at the gangs and the rapes and the, and the heartaches and the cruelty of men toward men. You look over in the communist countries. You look over in Cambodia and other places. And in the Middle East, with many of the Arab nations and, and the Israelis and all. And you look at how little respect that people have for human dignity and for life how cruel that people have become. I'll tell you this world is filled with heartache and sorrow. We are among the very few, the chosen elite in the world that have freedom and health. And even here I know there are those who suffer with with uh, children who are out of the truth or don't respect them, wives or husbands or parents or others who, I know there are those here who have loneliness and who have suffered various things. You know, it's time for Jesus to come, isn't it? When there won't be any more suffering or any more sorrow. I long for Jesus to come. I don't want to plan on a long life here on this earth. I want to see the things of this life end. I want to see Jesus come again. And I believe that it is time to get on with the business of seeing Jesus come and to quit playing church, to quit playing politics, and to start giving the message a certain sound and to see Jesus come again. It will never happen until we are willing to do the things that God has simply do the things God has told us to do that have to be done before He comes. You know, Jesus intended to come a long time ago, didn't he? I wonder why he hasn't come yet. You know, the Bible says that God does not change. Unless we change, he's never going to come. Now, we know that he's going to come. But you know, unless something changes, either we're not going to be a part of that closing movement or he's, not, or he's never going to come. Something has to happen. If we don't do anything different than what we've done for the last hundred years, God isn't going to somehow change rules and say, well, it's been long enough now. I know that uh, you're the same as you, you know, the church is just the same as it always has been, maybe worse, but I guess the great hands of the clock have somehow struck twelve and it's time for me to come. Red, you're not, here I come. Well, for many people, he's going to come when they're not ready. But God does not change. He's going to have, true enough, He's going to have a people that finally do the work. It may be the humble. It may be the obscure. He may have to pass us by. He may have to pass the ministry by. I don't know who He's going to use. He's going to find somebody that's willing to be used. But you know, Jesus has wanted to come for a long time for a long time. Back in 1888, the Lord sent a most precious message to this church that he hoped would finish his work on earth so that he could come again and so that the world would never have to go through World War I and World War II. Vietnam and the things that are happening in the Middle East and all the rest. God had hoped to have prevented all these things 
I read from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 234 and 235, these words. It says, An unwillingness to yield up opinions and to accept this truth. That's the truth of the righteousness of Jesus. Lay at the foundation of a large share of the opposition manifested at Minneapolis against the Lord's message through Brethren Wagner and Jones. By exciting that opposition, Satan succeeded in shutting away from our people in a great measure the special power of the Holy Spirit that the Lord longed to impart to them. The many prevented them the enemy prevented them from obtaining the efficiency which might have been theirs in carrying the truth to the world as the apostles proclaimed it after the day of Pentecost. The light that is to lighten the whole world with its glory was resisted and by our own brethren was in a great degree kept away from the world. The message that came down in 1888 was the message that was to bring about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what comes after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Those of probation, doesn't it? Time of trouble and Jesus' second coming? It all should have been, but somehow the message was rejected. I wonder why the message was rejected. How was it that Satan caused the message to be rejected? When Jesus came the first time, he was rejected. And when the Holy Spirit came down and presented Jesus again in 1888, he was rejected again. And both times, he was rejected by God's church. How did Satan succeed in accomplishing the same thing again? Well, we find the answer over here in, in Matthew 24, verse 24. At least one of the answers. It's what I'd like, to, like us to look at today. Matthew 24, verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to deceive a possible, even the elect. Now you know we've read these texts before and we've used them in Bible studies and evangelistic meetings. I think sometimes we've pictured some uh, hippie or druggie or or somebody that's a little off upstairs or something going around with a um, little placard over his shoulder saying, I am Christ, I am Elijah or something, you know. And we think there's going to be false Christs. Or maybe we think, uh, visualize a little seance where Christ supposedly comes down and talks with the people. We say, no, there's going to be false Christ. That's a false Christ. That isn't Jesus because when Jesus comes, all the world will see him. Maybe we picture somebody over like Jim Jones or somebody in a desert someplace or somebody somewhere coming and saying, I am Christ. Maybe somebody, if we're a little more sophisticated, coming down a spaceship saying, I am Christ. But we say, no, these are false Christs. For when Jesus comes, he will come and all the world will see him, every eye. All the nations will mourn because of him. But you know, if some drug addict comes along with a sign over his shoulder saying, I am Christ, that may deceive a few people, but I doubt it will deceive very many of the elect, don't you? 
I don't think you'll deceive very many of the elect. Now Satan is very interested in the in the drug addict and the hippie and all of these people. But you know he's the most interested in the elect. He already has these people in his hands. But it's the elect that he's coming down to deceive. Now he's concerned even about the Baptist and the Lutheran, the Catholic and the Methodist. He's concerned about all these wonderful people. He's concerned about them even more than he's concerned about about the drug addict down in London. Because at least they are professing to follow the Lord and many of them are following all the light they have. So Satan is much more concerned about them. But you know even more than them, the devil is the most concerned about that small group of people that have been entrusted with God's last saving message to the world. The elect. I want to tell you, dear friends, this text in the Bible was written here not so much for the Baptist, Methodists, and all of these. It was written for them, but it was especially written for God's peculiar people. It is them that Satan wants to come down and to deceive by introducing false Christ into the world and, more importantly, into the church. It was these false Christs that prevented the world and prevented especially the Jewish nation from accepting Jesus when he came the first time. When Jesus came, they were worshiping false Christ, a false Messiah. The scribes and Pharisees were very adept at repeating the the texts in the Bible that uh, portrayed a false Christ, at least the way they gave the texts out of context and applied them out of context. When they were all through, they had presented a false Christ to God's people. They repeated such texts as we find over here in Isaiah 24, verse 23. This was one of their favorite texts. It says, And the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before his elders gloriously. Now they said when the Messiah comes, he's going to reign in in Jerusalem. And all of the elders are going to accept him. Now you tell me, does this, does this Nazarene out here walking the dusty roads, is he reigning in Jerusalem? Compare the texts. All you have to do is read the Bible. He claims to be the Messiah, but if he doesn't fit this text, he must be an imposter. Are all the elders, are all of them recognizing him? Are they accepting him? And look at this text with me over here on Psalm 72, verse 8. Oh, they knew all these by heart. They didn't have to unroll the scrolls. They could repeat them. They knew many more. Here it says that he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So when the Messiah comes down, he will reign from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. His kingdom will be glorious. And his capital will be made in Jerusalem. Why, he doesn't even minister in Jerusalem. He's down here in Galilee. He doesn't have a kingdom. He has no soldier, no army. And the elders don't recognize him. He's an imposter. Oh, keep away from him. Because certainly if he is claiming to be the Messiah and he's an imposter, as he obviously is according according to the Scriptures, then he's being used by some other power 
and he's dangerous and he'll influence your mind. You'll end up, you go to hear him and you'll end up believing him, following him because something will take control of your mind. Stay away from him or you'll be deceived and deluded. And oh, they became very earnest, very earnest. I wish I had time to read to you how that they worked here and uh, even those who once believed on him, when they came to realize he was not going to reign, was not going to fulfill these these, uh, these, uh, conditions, they became very earnest in turning people away. It says the disaffected disciples had turned away from Christ. When they did that, a different spirit took control of them. They could see nothing attractive in him whom they had once found so interesting. They sought out his enemies, for they were in harmony with their spirit and work. They misrepresented his words, falsified his statement, and punished his motives. They sustained their course by gathering up every item that could be turned against him, and such indignation was stirred up by these false reports that his life was in danger. That's early in his ministry. Desire of Ages 392. The... They turned against Jesus and they gathered up everything they could find to turn others away from Him. After all, they were saving their souls. If they could turn away people from Jesus, they would save their souls from being deceived. And they came to the place where they fully, they fully and really believed that Jesus was an imposter. They believed that Jesus was an imposter. And so out of love for their brethren... And sisters, they found everything they could find to turn people away from Jesus so that they wouldn't lose their souls by being deceived. I want to tell you, dear friends, if you had come into the Jewish church back in Jesus' day, you would have found a people that were looking for the Messiah and who loved the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah to come. Oh, if you would have Ask them how many people were going to accept the Messiah when he came. Every hand would have gone up. They were all going to accept the Messiah when the Messiah came. They loved the Messiah. They sang songs about the Messiah. They had choirs that sang songs about the Messiah. They were looking for someone to give them that good feeling. And I'm going to tell you there was that good feeling that pervaded because they were, they were people who were who believed in the Messiah and were going to accept Him when they came. They prayed for the Messiah. And yet when He came, they crucified Him. Look with me over in John 1, verses 10 and 11. It says He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him, but that's not the worst. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Now, dear friend, why was it that Jesus was not accepted? Why wasn't Jesus accepted? Because the people were worshiping a false Messiah. They were worshiping a Messiah, but it was a false Messiah. 
It was the Messiah that had been presented to them out of Scripture, but out of context. And when the real Messiah came, they rejected him. And I want to tell you, the foremost people who rejected him were those who thought that they were the elect. They were the religious leaders of the day. It was those who paid their tithes and their offerings and who went to church or the synagogue every Sabbath. Every Sabbath. It was those who kept all the rules and who sent their children to the church school. It was those who were the religious teachers and leaders and preachers and administrators. It was these who rejected him. While the common, humble sinners and publicans and harlots accepted him. The rest rejected. You know, as you read the Bible, it's the saddest story in all the world to find a people who spent their life working for the Lord, who gave their means, and who lived a life that maybe they could have lived a life more happily some other way, but they lived a life of rigorous uh, of uh, rigorous religious in rigorous religious service, keeping all the little minutia of rules, who did everything that they should do to follow the Bible. It was these people who gave their life to the Lord and who served Him all their life who crucified Jesus. The saddest story in the world. And yet even sadder is that the history is going to be repeated again. That's the saddest part. You know, when Jesus left the disciples, he said, I'm going to come again. Isn't that what he said? Let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, if I go, I will come again, that I may receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Oh, dear friend, we cling to that promise. I cling to it, don't you? I look forward to that day. And if you come and ask me if I'm looking for the Messiah, I am looking for him. I'm looking for him again. Am I preparing for him? Oh, yes, I'm preparing for him. And I've given my life in service that I might be ready and that I might help other people to be ready. But dear friend, once before there was a whole group of people who had given their life and service that they might be ready and help other people be ready and they were the ones who crucified him. It's going to happen again. Look with me over here at Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, if you have a red-lettered Bible, what color is this? It's red. That means what? Who said this? Jesus. Jesus said this. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, that's to Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord. Now, when Jesus said this, Jesus wasn't very popular. Not a lot of people were calling him Lord. The thief on the cross did, but not many. But Jesus says, not everyone who calls me, Lord, Lord. This is talking about Christians, dear friends. This is talking about Christians who look to Jesus as their Lord, and they claim him publicly as their Lord. These are public Christians. And they don't just say it once, they repeat it, Lord, Lord. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many. Now, he has just said there's only going to be a few who go in by that narrow gate. That's up in verses 13 and 14. Now he contrasts the few with the many. While there's only going to be a few who are saved, there's going to be many who think they're saved. There's going to be many who say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we cast out demons in your name, prophesied in your name, done many wonderful things in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, and reading in the Greek, you who did not keep the law, you who didn't practice the law. The New King James uh, writes it, you who practiced lawlessness. Now you know this text was written for all the good Anglicans and Baptists and Lutherans. All of the good people who think they're serving the Lord and who don't keep the Sabbath. It's a wonderful text to preach on in evangelism, especially if you know the Greek. The literal Greek doesn't say iniquity. That was put in by the King James. I don't know why. But the Greek is the anomian, word anomian, the same word as you find in 1 John 3, 4, the interpretation of sin, not keeping the law. And uh, so it's a great text to preach on. Dear friend, it applies to every Christian in the world. But I want to tell you, it especially applies to those who think that they are God's special people. It applies in a special way to God's remnant people who claim to be the elect. I have come to the startling realization that this whole chapter of Matthew 7 and especially these verses of 21 to 23, while they apply to all the world, have a special reference to Seventh-day Adventists. It is a corollary text to the Laodicean message in Revelation 3. Now, you know the Laodicean message applies to everyone in the world. It applies to Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, and Anglicans, and Catholics. It applies to all of them. But you know who it applies to in a special way? Seventh-day Adventists. That's who it was especially written for. Now, dear friend, this text was especially written for Seventh-day Adventists. Those who go through, of course, are those going to be those who keep the law and have the faith of Jesus. But here are a people who think they're saved, and yet the Bible says that they are lawless. You know, I never thought I'd live to see the day when I would see people who would actually... I knew a lot of people who were, were Adventists who weren't keeping the law, but I never thought I'd see the day when I'd find people who would actually teach that you can't keep the law come into the church. I never thought I'd see that day. But I'm telling you, today, that's about all you hear is that you can't keep the law. We have teachers of lawlessness. Not only are people not keeping the law, they're being told they can't keep the law. And as we learned last night, if you believe you can't keep the law, you can't keep it because the only way we can have power is to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe that he has power to help us overcome our sins. Without that faith, it's impossible to please God. Without that faith, it's impossible to receive the power of God to help us overcome sin. But there's many, many people who believe that they're worshiping God and who believe they're worshiping Jesus, who are worshiping a false Christ today. And that false Christ has entered right within our very church. We read over here in 1 John 2, verse 3 and 4, we find John war warns us about a false Christ. 
He says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is worshiping a false Christ. They don't know him. They know somebody they're calling Christ. They know somebody they're calling Jesus, but they don't know him. It's a false Christ. He who says, I know him does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we know the right one. If you're not keeping the commandments, you don't know the right one. As it says in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him. They may have seen someone. They may know someone that they call Christ, but they haven't seen him and they don't know him. They're worshiping a false Christ. John introduces the false Christ that would be introduced to the world in the next chapter. It was part of the great apostasy that came into the Christian world and for which the Seventh-day Adventist Church was raised up to, to counteract and to, uh, to bring in the a true Christ. But here it says in chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of Christ, of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Not everyone who says that he has come, but he who says that he has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist that you've heard was coming into the world and now is already in the world. Now, what does it mean to come in the flesh? You know... This text is kind of hard to explain for our new theologians. Of course, they don't believe it. That's how they get around it. They don't believe it. I've asked them. I haven't found a one that believes it. Because this text says that every spirit that does not confess that Jesus came in the flesh that every, is not of God, and everyone that confesses he came in the flesh is of God. All I have to do is ask someone, do you believe that everybody that can, believes that Jesus came in the flesh is of God? Well, no, they don't believe that because, you see, they just believe that this flesh means that he came down as a human being uh, with, with skin that you can feel. Now, every Christian in the world believes that, almost. There are a few people in early Christianity called the Docetists who didn't. This is one of the cardinal teachings of the Catholic Church, that Jesus Christ came down in skin and bones and became a man. Is every apparition of Mary that comes down, is every one of these apparitions, are these all true spirits from God? According to this text, if you accept the modern theologians, they're all true spirits of God because every one of these uh, spirits of Mary that come down and say, I'm Mary, the mother of God, that every one of these that come down, um, every one of them claim that Jesus came down in skin and bone. And according to this text, if that's your understanding of flesh, they're all of God. The Bible says that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every one of them. Of course, we have to understand what the word flesh means in the Bible. Paul uses the word flesh throughout, and so does John, in a spiritual sense to mean a fallen human nature. We don't even have to look them all up. If we look them up, we could look up a few. Let me refer to a few, and maybe we can look up a couple. But let's just refresh our minds over in Galatians 5. It says, the works of the what? Flesh is what? 
their adultery, lust, lasciviousness, whatever that word means, you know, wrath, envy, malice, all of these things. There's not one good work there listed. These are the works of the what? Of the flesh. Paul, Paul mourns in Romans 7. He says, I find that within my flesh that something is dwelling. What is dwelling there within his flesh? Sin is dwelling. That's what is dwelling there. Paul ta- tells us in Romans 8, if we do the works of the flesh, if we follow the flesh, what's going to happen to us? We're going to what? We're going to die. We're told over in 1 Corinthians 15 that flesh and blood cannot inherit heaven. Now skin is going to inherit heaven. Do you remember when Jesus came down after his resurrection? He said, touch me and feel. I have skin and I have bones. A spirit doesn't have skin and bones, he said. But I do. And he had already been to heaven. But dear friend, he no longer had a fallen nature. One of the cardinal contentions in 1888 between Jones and Wagner versus Butler was who was Jesus? Jones and Wagner came down and they said Jesus came down with a nature like I have, but he overcame sin and therefore I can overcome sin too. They said Jesus came down with two natures, a fallen human nature and a divine nature. But he lived according to the by faith under the power of the Holy Spirit day by day. And every day he crucified his fallen nature and he never yielded to it. Not even by a thought did he yield to it. And so he walked day by day under the control of the Holy Spirit. And he chose to do what's right and he chose to resist temptation. And because Jesus did that, if we'll receive the divine power like he did, which is called the new birth, if we'll receive a new birth, a new nature, the divine nature, and if we'll crucify the lust of the flesh, if we'll crucify our natural tendencies to evil by God's power, we can live like Jesus did. That was the message of 1888. He wrote to, Wagner wrote to Butler in 1887, before 1888, Letter back in February. And he explained how that Jesus was born with a nature like David had. And how was David born, he said. Oh, David said in Psalm 51, verse 5, I was born in iniquity and, and sin did my mother conceive me. He says, don't start in horrified, um, uh, in horror is what he said. Don't start in horror. He said, I'm not saying Jesus was a sinner. I'm saying he was tempted like we are in all things. He was born with a human nature like we are, but he overcame that sin and we can do it too. That was the central issue of 1888. But in heart, it was rejected. And a false Christ was introduced into the world. A Christ that is the Christ of the Antichrist. And dear friends, the Christ of the Antichrist cannot save a person. The Christ of the Antichrist cannot save from sin. You see, Satan had boasted to his angels. Ellen White says this in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, on up about 46, 48, right along in there. She says that Satan boasted to his angels that when Jesus should come down and take man's fallen nature, that he would overcome him. But when Jesus came down, it wasn't Jesus who was overcome, it was Satan who was overcome. 
And Satan was embarrassed and enraged. And so he decided to change the story. He could not admit that he was overcome by a man in our nature. Because he said, mankind is still mine. I'm not going to let them go. Jesus might have escaped, but I'm not going to let man go. They're all mine. Jesus, he must have had an unfair advantage. And so he built the doctrine that Jesus came down with an unfair advantage over us. He came down, not like we are, but with a nature like the angels or like Adam before he fell, but not like we are. Yes, he, he made it, but he cheated. The rest of mankind is still mine. They're under my control and my dominion. One man made it, but the rest are mine, and I'll never let them go. And so he brought in this doctrine through the Antichrist system. It was called the Immaculate Conception. It means Jesus was born immaculately or like Adam before he fell. We're all born a little different, a lot different. We're born like Adam after he fell. And he began to bring in a whole series of false doctrine to support this central false doctrine. He changed the he changed the definition of sin and he did a lot of other things to, to back up this one doctrine. Now when the Protestant Reformation came, the Lord began to reverse the teachings of the Antichrist one, one uh, teaching at a time. But uh, there were two errors, three errors that were, remained for a long time. One was Sunday sacredness and one was immortality of the soul. And one was that Jesus was born with an unfair advantage to us. And so God raised up the Adventist church to bring in the rest of the gospel. To bring in the true doctrine of the judgment in heaven and the state of the dead and how that we receive our reward at Jesus' second coming, not when we die to teach about the seventh-day Sabbath, and finally to bring in the truth about who Jesus was. But it was rejected. We read over here in Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11, For it was fitting for whom, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. It says that both them who are being sanctified and he who sanctifies are all of what? One. They're all of one. Therefore, it says in verse 17, In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. I'm telling you, the Bible is so clear. It says that Jesus had to be tempted so he could help those who were tempted. And therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. We read over here in Romans 8. That uh, while we are sold under sin... We can't help ourselves that Jesus came down. It says in verse 3, What the law could not do, and that it was weak because of our flesh or our fallen nature. The law tells us what to do, but we can't do it because we have a fallen nature. 
What the law could not do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're told over here in Desire of Ages, page 668, uh, Ellen White assures us that when Jesus came down, 664, that he revealed no qualities and exercised no powers that men may not have through faith in him. His perfect humanity is that which all his followers may possess if they will be in subjection to God as he was. We find over on page 24 of the Desire of Ages, page 24, It says Satan represents God's law of love as a law of selfishness. He declares that it's impossible for us to obey its precepts. It it was, um, Jesus was to unveil this deception, and how was he to do it? As one of us, he was to give us an example of obedience. For this, he took upon himself our nature and passed through our experiences and all things that behooved him to be made like it to his brethren. If we had to bear anything which Jesus did not endure, then upon this point, Satan would represent the power of God as insufficient for us. Therefore, Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. He endured every trial to which we are subject, and he exercised in his own behalf no power that is not freely offered to us. As man he met temptation, overcame in the strength given him of God. His life testifies that it is possible for us also to obey the law of God. Well, this was one of the central issues of 1888 is who was Jesus. And who Jesus is and who we believe Jesus is depends on depends on what we do with him. There are those who say that Jesus came down and he came down like with the nature of an angel or nature of Adam before he fell. And so he came down not to help us overcome sin because he can't do that. He was different than we are, but to die in our place. So he forgives us our sins. We don't have to worry about overcoming because we just go on sinning. But Jones and Wagner came down to teach that Jesus did not come down just to forgive us of our sins, but to help to give us the power to overcome sin. And he did that by coming down in our nature and taking hold of sin and conquering sin for us. And so we can do it with his power just like he did. Now, there is one and so it is because of this that when Jesus comes again there's going to be multitudes of Seventh-day Adventists who believe that they are among God's elect, but who have been deceived because they've been following a false Christ. But I'd like you to notice the text does not say that he would, there would be a false Christ in the world to deceive the elect. It says there would be false Christs, plural. Now, I've only covered half of what I wanted to cover today. I was going to cover something else this afternoon. But this afternoon, I want to look over a second false Christ that's just as 
detrimental to one's salvation as the first false Christ, and it was also one of the central themes of 1888. And it's one of the central themes today. There is a second false Christ that the Bible presents that is going to keep people from uh, being ready when Jesus comes. That is going to cause people to think that they're saved when they're most assuredly lost. I'll tell you, dear friends, the most awful thing in all the world would be to think you're saved and find out you're lost. You know, it's one thing to, to be out there and doing all the things of the world, committing adultery and drinking and, and, uh, and doing, stealing whatever you want to do. It's one thing to be out there and know you're lost and end up and find that you were right. But it's a whole other thing to think you're saved and to be doing everything that you think you should be doing to being saved, to be saved, and then find out that you're lost, not only lost, but you're worse than the heathen. To find out that you're the one who crucified the Son of God, to find out that you're the one who's been opposing His message. Because I tell you, before Jesus comes, we're all going to be either giving the message or opposing the message, one or the other. Jesus said, He who doesn't gather with me scatters abroad. Everyone who didn't accept Jones and Wagner fought Jones and Wagner back in his day, and the same is going to happen today. God has a message to go to the world, and He has a message to go to the church. Elijah's message has to come again. And it comes to Israel first, and then to the world. Everyone who doesn't accept the Elijah message ends up opposing it. And they become the worst enemies of the message. Those who were the worst enemies of, of Jesus when He was here was not the Romans. It was those who thought that they were God's own people. They were trying to protect and preserve the truth and the system, dear friends. They were trying to protect it from the imposter, Jesus Christ. They had to, at all costs, preserve the church and the system and the tithing and all the rest. Jesus said, you're very careful about the tithe and you're very careful about the church and you're very careful about the Sabbath. They were so careful that they were willing to do anything to get rid of Jesus because he was upsetting the system. I'll tell you, it's one thing to be lost and know that you're lost, dear friends. But in my book, it'd be a hundred times worse to think you're saved than to be lost. At least those who are lost you can reach because they know it. But how do you reach someone who thinks they're saved when they're most assuredly lost? Oh, dear friend, can you see those Jewish leaders who had given their life to the Lord waking up? Of course, they're going to wake up at the second coming, the special resurrection. But there's multitudes of Seventh-day Adventists who are going to wake up and being, be expecting to be lifted up above the earth and to climb, but they don't go anywhere. They're here, and they look around. They find a multitude, a lot more people here than they had expected. But as they look, they find a lot of people they, didn't, they know that aren't in the, well, didn't wake up at the right time. And they look, things are wrong, and they begin to rub their eyes. as in a bad dream, and there's the holy city there. And they remember their Bible doctrines they learned in Sabbath school and in in college, and they began to remember, hey, this is a thousand years too late. Oh, Lord, you must have made a mistake. Hey, you forgot something a thousand years ago. You forgot something. 
You made a mistake. He said, listen, I have been, you, you I know you. I, I kept your Sabbath. I did a lot of things in your name. Don't you remember me? He looks at us and somehow there's no recognition there in those eyes. He doesn't know us. So I'm sorry, I just, I just don't know who you are. There's not going to be a sadder disappointment in all the world, dear friends. And God doesn't want us to experience that disappointment. And that's why today he comes down to a church who claims to be serving him, who claims to be rich and increased with goods, and he knocks on the door. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will just hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in to him. If any man, he's knocking. You know, we hear that knock and we go to the door. It's not safe today to open the door to anyone, you know. You have to be careful who you open the door to. There's a lot of criminals out there in the world. In the religious world, there's a lot of imposture, and we can't even trust our feelings, and that's true. We can't. There's a lot of wrong things all over, and so we go to the door. Before opening it, we say, who's there? Who's there? The voice on the other side says, uh, this is Christ, Jesus Christ. And we say, who? Jesus Christ. Say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you must be mistaken because Christ is abiding in here. How can, you must be the wrong man. You see, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I've been an Adventist for a long time. Why, I'm not only an Adventist, I'm a Sabbath school teacher. I'm an elder. I read my morning watch. I accepted Jesus Christ. In fact... I even took a spiritual gifts test and I found out that I have the Holy Spirit. I have the gift of hospitality and a couple other gifts. I'm sorry, whoever you are, please go away. So we go in and turn on the television set and get out the newspaper and we forget all about that knocking. The next day there's that knock again. We don't hear it right at first this time, but as it persists, we pick it up, and so we go. And uh, we say, who's there? And the voice says, uh, this is Christ. Christ? Well, I thought you were here yesterday. I told you that you were the wrong man. Christ is already inside. No, he said, uh, I'm still out here, still knocking to get in. He says, well, listen. Do you have any credentials with you that I can see? Credentials. Yes, you know. Do you have a letter from the conference president or something that I might know who you are? No, he said. I don't have any, any human credentials. All I have is the divine credentials. Well, I'm sorry then. If you didn't come through the right channels, it's going to have to go away. So we go back and we open our Sabbath school lesson and we continue to study. We open our review and we continue to read. But the next day he's back again. 
And this time we don't hear it for a long time because we're busy studying our Sabbath school lesson and reading our review and, and doing all the other things, mowing the church lawn and things. But it keeps locking, and pretty soon we say, hey, there, there's a knock. I almost didn't hear it. I better go see who it is. I guess I must be getting used to it. We go and we say, who's there? He says, well, this is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Why, you've been here the last two days. I thought I told you that first day that he was here and the second day you didn't have the right credentials. Please go away. He says, listen, don't send me away yet. I have a question to ask you. I want to ask you a question. Yes, what is it? Well, he says, have you lost your temper today? Lost my temper? What's that supposed to mean? I mean, everyone gets irritated and loses their temper once in a while. Well, that's only human, you know. Well, Christ says, that's just the problem. I'm not inside to help you. If I was only in there, I could help you. He said, listen, young man, you watched television last night. What did you think about when you were watching that movie? Were you thinking about the Lord? Or was your mind thinking thoughts of lust? Oh, Lord, you're not supposed to know about those things. I wasn't watching it on the Sabbath, you know. That's my business, what I do. He says, young woman, what about those feelings of envy and jealousy in the church and those things that you're eating? Well, we find our excuses and we stumble and we mumble. Finally, we let him know that we were told that we don't have to overcome these things. The Christ we serve just came down to forgive. The Christ we serve doesn't make us overcome. We have a Christ inside, and he's told me that I'm okay. And I have the assurance of salvation. Please go away. Well, he says, listen, just one more question before I go away. Please let me ask you one more question. Yes, what is it? Let me ask you this last question. Do you have peace inside? Peace. Yes, do you have peace? Don't you remember when I left? In John 16, that I promised that although in the world you'd have tribulation, that in me you would have peace because I've overcome the world. Remember what it says over here in Isaiah 48, verse 22. In Isaiah 48, I promised peace to all those who would follow me. Peace. But down in verse 22, it says, There is no peace, says the Lord, to the wicked. There is no peace to the wicked. Do you have peace? And we have to confess, No, Lord, I, I guess I really don't have peace. 
That's why I stay so busy and so occupied and do so many things to cry out, keep my mind occupied so I don't have time to be alone. I guess I have to admit I don't have peace. And then he says, do you know why? It's because I'm not inside. The wrong one's in there, but I'm not inside. Would you like to know what the conditions of peace are? Let me tell you. It's found over here in the Laodicean message, Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21. Jesus says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. Dear friend, today the Lord is knocking at your heart. He wants to come in. He wants to come in. He wants to give you victory over every sin of your life. Those sins that you may not have been able to conquer for years and years, never been able to conquer. He wants to give you victory over appetite, over lust, over covetousness and enviousness, over those irritations that come out when people rub us the wrong way, over losing our temper, over false thoughts. He wants to give us that peace that only He can give and that only comes by victory. But first, He must come in so He can take charge. He can't stand out, knock, stand out there knocking all day long. He has to come in. He has to come in. He has to be the King. By His grace, He has to reign within our hearts. He must live out his life within us. We must confess our sins and allow him in. We must be broken and be converted. Dear friends, today I wonder how many would like to say, Lord, I've been keeping you out there too long till I've almost forgot that you're knocking. I'd like you to come in. I wonder if there's someone this morning who's maybe feels they've never really let him in before. I'm sure there's many who have experienced victory at one time or another. There's maybe some who are walking day by day, but I wonder if there's someone this morning who's never really let him in. May have been a Christian all their life, may have been an Adventist all their life, but they've never let the real Lord in. They've never known that real peace and that real victory that only he can give. I wonder if there's someone like that this morning, if you'd like to stand and say, Lord, I want you to come into my life this morning. I've been professing to follow you all my life. Maybe there's someone listening to the tape. Might be some here who want to share this message with someone who says, I've been an Adventist all my life. Someone is listening to the tape. I'd like to invite you just to fall down on your knees right now and say, Lord, I'm going to accept you. Now, maybe for the first time. But I wonder this morning here, is there someone who has never, feels that they've never really accepted the Lord before? they not the real Lord, and they'd like to this morning. If there is, I'd like to invite you to stand. I know there's something else. 
the Lord goes for morning walk every morning. Somehow, when we get up every morning, he, He's standing there when we wake up. He's saying, I want to come in again to your life today. We all have to let Him in that first time, but you know something? We have to let Him again, in again every single morning. Every morning. We can't let Him in just once. Because He goes for a walk every morning for His exercise, I guess you might say. I mean, I'm using figurative language here, of course. But you know, every morning, the Lord wants to get in again for that day. Every morning. This morning is not good enough for tomorrow. And tomorrow is not good enough for the next day. Every morning, He must come in. He does it as we kneel down in prayer and we confess our sins and open up our life to Him and as we spend time with His words and surrender again to Him for that day. I wonder how many would like to share this morning that they're going to make a covenant that they're going to open that door every morning to the Lord Jesus Christ to come into their life through Bible study, prayer, and surrender. How many would like to stand and say, I'm going to make that commitment. I'm going to make that commitment to surrender my life to Him every morning and to open up the door that I might have victory over sin every day, one day at a time, day by day, and that I might have peace in my life even through the most trying situations, even during the time of trouble, that I might have peace, that I might have His presence within. Let us pray. Lord, most of us here in this room have accepted You at some time or another. But Lord, we want to accept You not just once, but every day. Every day and every day. As we get up, we want to spend that time with you. There may be some who've listened to this tape, who've got down on their knees and have accepted you for the first time. Lord, I pray that you'll be especially near to them. Touch their heart. Give them that peace and that victory. Help them to realize there's a struggle ahead, but you'll go with them every step of the way. And that in the struggle that you're yoked right up with them and that you can have, they can have your peace within their heart. Lord, we're here and you died to save us and we know that if the true Christ is reigning within, that every one of us can be ready for translation. Not a soul here that has been so bad that you can't save. Not a soul here that is so weak that you can't help them overcome every sin. Not a soul here that is so old or so young so uneducated or so ignorant or so weak. Not a soul here that is so discouraged that you can't bring them forth more than victorious. If we have you abiding within, Lord, we can't do it ourselves, but may we open the door. May we open up the door every morning in the study of the Word in prayer, and in total surrender so that you can come in and have control of our life. And then, Lord, through us, humble as we may be and as humble as we should be, not looking to us, but looking to you, may you work through us and pour out your Holy Spirit to us and give the final message to the world as you intended to do in 1888 so that the world can be warned and that you can come again soon and that 
the sorrow and the discouragement and the heartache of this world can come to an end. And that death and sorrow can be thrown into the lake of fire and a peace can reign throughout the universe. Lord, may that day come soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.